Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the Network and host of this podcast. In episode 17, we are delighted to have Dr. Eli Friedman to discuss his book with Columbia University Press, titled "The Urbanization of People." Hello, Eli.、Uh, great to have you with、uh, the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities Meet the Author podcast today. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.、Uh, really excited to be here and to、uh, share some of my research. So my name is Eli Friedman.、Um, I am an associate professor、uh, and chair in the Department of International and Comparative Labor, and that's at Cornell University. Uh, I'm trained as a sociologist, and I've been doing research in China for almost twenty years now. Great, great. So、uh, today, our main purpose is to talk about your、uh, new book,、uh, which is called "The Urbanization of People,"、uh, published by Columbia University Press. And in this book, you are providing a very vivid and detailed account of your. Uh, long-term、uh, research in、uh, Chinese migrant schools in the city of Beijing. So, can you tell us what motivated you to conduct this piece of research in the first place? Yeah, you know, this project was almost an accident.、Um, I'm not trained as an education scholar. I'm also not trained in urban studies, and I ended up writing a book that's about urbanization and education. Um, so it kind of took me by surprise.、Uh, I'm, I'm really trained as a labor sociologist,、um, and most of the research that I've done is on on labor issues in China.、Um, but the the way that I ended up doing it was my my first project was focused really on labor politics, and so I was going in mostly I was in in, in Guangdong, in in Shenzhen, in Guangzhou, and in, in that area. And I was talking to workers about their issues within the workplace. I ended up writing a book that came out of that, and it was、uh, looking at the question of how the state responds to all of this this growing labor unrest.、Um, but you know, I would go and I would I would talk to workers about what was happening for them in the workplace, how they how they were resisting, and. Oftentimes,、uh, I found that workers were just as concerned with things that were happening outside of the workplace as the things that were happening inside the workplace.、Um, and you know, as now myself being a, a parent,、um, I can understand that once you have children, you know, that's that's the thing that you're really thinking about all the time. And so, a thing that kept coming up in these interviews was, yeah, you know, my my boss is terrible, and my job has got all these issues. But the thing that really keeps me up at night is that, as a migrant worker, I can't get my children into school here, right? And so, you know, this kept coming up, and and I began looking into it. And、uh, as someone who is is generally interested in in social problems and with migrant workers in general, I thought it was important to be able to pay attention to the things that people. Themselves were telling me、um, was important. There's also the, the the structural changes that are happening in in China's economy and in patterns of migration, where we increasingly see、uh, the aging of the workforce. Right. So migrant workers used to be overwhelmingly very young. So you had teenagers, and the typical pattern was that by the time people got to their mid twenties, they would move 
back to the village and that's where they would get married and that's where they would have children. But increasingly we see an aging of the workforce happening uh, over the course of the 21st century. So you have more and more people who are in their 30s and who are in their 40s. And there's a change which is reflective, I think, both of what's happening in the economy, but also at the cultural level where people are moving to cities, they want to stay in cities, right? And so the question of being able to bring their children to those cities, being able to enroll them in schools and hopefully in, in decent schools is an increasingly important thing for migrant workers. So again, I just kind of followed my informants. They were telling me this is what's important. And so for my next project, I decided I wanted to be cited um, in, uh, in these migrant schools um, and, and to understand how parents are dealing with these challenges. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating that you mentioned this uh, phrase, which was like the issues that kept, kept you uh, up at, at night, which is really, you know, sometimes we, we feel like this kind of like more gut feelings, like your, your sort of researcher's instinct at the field side is really important. And I think this might have quite a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, implications or, or, you know, it's a, a form of very important uh, researcher's insight that we should uh, learn from. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's something that I, I can really, um, I can really empathize with, uh, you know, I think particularly for migrant workers in China, their expectations from their employers uh, are pretty low, right? A lot of these jobs in these export oriented manufacturing facilities are just not very good. And there's never been an expectation that working for, you know, Foxconn or whoever is going to be a great job. I think there is a strong expectation. Um, as citizens of the People's Republic of China that their children are entitled to uh, nine years compulsory education. And so when they see obstacles to that, um, you know, it, it creates a real, a real sense of frustration. And, you know, we can, we can get into that more later if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. So in this book, you mentioned the very intriguing notions of just-in-time approach to the urbanization of people. And also another term is inverse welfare state. So can you briefly explain these terms to us? Sure. So this uh, idea of just-in-time urbanization is the response I give to the key question. The key research question that structures uh, the book is to understand how uh, cities in China, and particularly the megacities, are managing flows of people. I approach that from the perspective of the school because I see the school as one of the key sites where people are either integrated into cities or expelled. And my answer to that question is that the megacities, at least, are trying to use this just-in-time urbanization approach. So I can explain that a little bit. And here you can you can very clearly see my background uh, as a labor scholar. Mm. Um, the uh, this is I'm I'm arguing for an extended uh, analogy with just-in-time production. So maybe I should just first describe what just-in-time production is, and then I can and then we can understand how it relates to this just-in-time urbanization. So just-in-time production emerges in the Toyota production system, um, producing automobiles in the 1960s uh, and 1970s. Um, the simplest way to understand what just-in-time is, uh, uh, and I have a, a quote from, from Taichi Ono, he was the guy who was most responsible for developing just-in-time principles while at Toyota, and he says that, um, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but that just-in-time is, in essence, um, bringing uh, commodities through the supply chain in just the right quantities and just the right qualities at just the right time 
And that's all done in an effort to reduce waste in the production process. So in the case of Toyota, you have these lead manufacturers and they have all of these suppliers of different kinds of parts, right? And the, the lead assembly firms want to be able to pull all of the parts necessary for, for the production of an automobile, which of course is a very complex um, piece of machinery. They wanna be able to pull them through the supply chain kind of just in precisely the right amounts. And, and the reason that they wanna do this is they don't wanna buy more parts than they need. They're looking at the way automobile production has been manufactured, has been organized in the United States under the Forda system, where you have these huge warehouses. And so the parts, they just are kind of producing these parts. They come through to the final assembler and then you have these huge warehouses. Those huge warehouses are hard to keep track of inventory and they're expensive to maintain. You have to have this big space. You have to keep track of where everything is. And so you end up wasting a lot, right? And so the idea is again, just to bring them through kind of as necessary. So what does this mean when we're thinking about urbanization? Well, in this metaphor, the megacities, places like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, are um, they occupy the position of lead firm, right? These are at the top of China's socio-spatial hierarchy. They're the most economically developed places. And they're the places that are thinking of themselves as in locked in intense global competition with other global cities, right? Places like Tokyo, New York, Singapore, et cetera. Um, so what, what the, the parts in this metaphor are not auto parts, but are people, right? And so what cities, what I see cities trying to do is to be able to bring in certain kinds of people that have certain skills in just the right quantities and just bring them into the city on an as-needed basis. And that those people that are determined to not be kind of necessary, most importantly for this process of economic upgrading and, and global competitiveness, those people can be, those are treated essentially as, as waste and they are pushed out of the city. So, so again, it's these kind of application of just-in-time principles to, to people rather than, rather than auto parts to be able to bring people in and out of the city in this kind of um, dynamic basis. Um, there's a bunch of differences as well. It's not a, it's not a perfect analogy, um, but you know, those, those um, are, are not super important, I think, to understand uh, for the moment. So that's, that's the just-in-time. As far as the inverted welfare state, this is um, <clears throat> an insight that I derived from both from looking very carefully at all of the policies that megacities are using to grant access to public education, uh, as well as from hundreds of interviews that I did with parents uh, and, and teachers um, and understanding um, how those policies are actually implemented. And, and for people who have familiarity with the Chinese system, of course, there's always a big gap between the sort of the policy as stated and then how it actually gets implemented. Um, at the local level. The basic argument with, with, the, with the inverted welfare state is that um, in contrast to the way welfare states developed in, in many capitalist countries in the latter half of the 20th century, the idea with those welfare states is to provide forms of public assistance and public services, sometimes in kind of a, a means-tested way, which is to say that for, you know, for rich people will receive less access to these, these public resources, 
but uh, for you know poorer people, they will be able they will be able to demonstrate that they have a need, and therefore they can access more public services. That's one way of understanding a welfare state. There's a lot of diversity, but that's one way of understanding it. The inversion that I see happening in in, in terms of distribution of of access to public education in Chinese megacities is that it's it's precisely the opposite of that. That the good that the public good of education is being given to those people who have high levels of economic capital, cultural capital, and social capital, right? So the better off you are, the more likely you are to be able to access um, public education, and everybody else is left to the market. So if you look at all the migrant workers in cities like, like Beijing or, or Guangzhou, where I also did uh, considerable research, if you can't get into public schools, everybody wants to get into the public schools, and if you can't get in, then you are left to this kind of shadow education system uh, of, of informal and highly marketized education. And it's a big problem because it's highly marketized education for the children of people who are the worst off, right? Because they didn't get into the public system. And so that means the kinds of education that they can buy on the market, it's not very good, right? Because these schools just don't have very much uh, in terms of resources. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. I mean, um, also, I think uh, in your book, you, you did critique, uh, especially the just-in-time uh, um, sort of urbanization. Um, for instance, I think you mentioned that it's, uh, in reality, it's impossible to, to realize this kind of uh, vision. And to me, I, I feel uh, that this is such a functional functionalist approach, right? Like, okay, in, in automobile pr uh, production, it's highly understandable. You want to reduce waste, but when you reduce people to parts, you know, it's very inhumane. Yeah, and I think you, you did critique this uh, in, in your yes. book, yeah? Yeah, um, so, so I mean, yeah. and that really is the most important difference, which is mm -hmm. precisely that people are not automobiles. You know, if you mm -hmm. see some of the language that government officials are using, they'll talk about human talents and in kind of this depersonalized way. Mm -hmm. But you can't actually just move people about because people move places, they develop community, they develop attachments to places. And so ultimately it, it, it can't work out. It's a governing strategy, but it, it can't work out perfectly. Mm, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And in terms of the inverse welfare uh, state, um, it, it reminds me of a little bit of, of the elite education uh, sort of sector you know, in the West where uh, indeed if you have more social cultural economic capital you can get more access to the elite education uh, provision but then it this does not seem to be the case for the public provision of education you know like the usually free or, or very low cost sort of public funded uh, education whereas in china chinese big mega cities like beijing you know like the uh, migrant workers are reduced to to this very substandard sort of uh, private education provision yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm less familiar with uh, with Europe, um, but certainly with respect to the United States, some of the effects are are quite similar in, in the sense that, you know, as is true in many societies, elites get access to better education. They find one way or another to ensure mm -hmm. that. But the specific mechanisms are a little bit different in the U.S. And I, I do think it makes for an interesting comparison. So. What we see in, in this country is that, um, yes, everybody has access to public education. Uh, it doesn't matter you know, what region of the country you're from, you can move around and very quickly establish residency. In fact, in the United States, 
um, you don't even need to, to demonstrate citizenship in order to, to access public education, at least in primary and secondary levels. Um, and so in a sense, it's a very kind of open system. On the other hand, what we see is that real estate plays a really important mediating role in terms of the quality of that public education. So there's been a long historical process of sort of the hollowing out and attacks on public education systems in the large cities. So if you look at large, very wealthy cities like you know New York City or Los Angeles, um, the, the public education systems there um, have been greatly diminished, right? Because basically what's happened is that wealthy people have moved to the suburbs, right? To different jurisdictions. And once there, um, they wealthy people can send their children to public schools, right? And those public schools are not blocked by these kind of administrative arrangements where you have to demonstrate citizenship or residency. They're blocked because the only way you can get residency is if you can buy a house. And if the house costs $2 million, well, then you have to be rich to move there. So it is public school, but only in a very, very narrow sense, right? It's public school once you've met this threshold of, of buying a house. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think some of the effects are not all that different, but but the the, the specific mm -hmm. pathways are, are are different from China. Yeah, but what is interesting is that in the case of the phenomenon that you just described in the U.S., the government doesn't actively say, oh, you know, this group of people, you have to give me like all these documents in order right. to to be enrolled. You know, a, a, theoretically speaking, everyone can enroll so long as they can afford to buy a house in their area, right? That's right. All you have to demonstrate is that, you know, you have this address, you, you bring in a, a, a letter that you've received at that address, and it's within uh, the catchment area of the school, you yeah. can enroll. Yeah, whereas in the case of Beijing, and I think in some of your very vivid cases, there was this family that had, that they have the, the capital, the economic capital, like they had stayed in Beijing for 20 years, and, and they did have like some relatively better sort of financial provision, but they were still barred from, from the, the assessing the public school precisely because they were not able to provide all those documentations. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I try to draw attention to uh, in the book. When we think about migrant workers in China, the image that comes to mind is generally of working class people, blue collar workers or informal workers. But actually, it's it's quite a broad category. And so, um, you know, I have one example there in the book of this guy who's a, um, a tech worker, a tech CEO, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, he's started his own company. Um, and he had this problem with getting the, the education registration um, for his daughter established. <clears throat> and uh, and so this meant that as she was proceeding through high school, you know, she she was not able to to register. And so he wrote this very kind of angry letter, which uh, or, or, or a post on Weibo, which attracted a lot of attention, being like, here I am, you know, this well off person. Uh, and if even for me, this poses challenges you know, mm. the implications of what it means for, you know, for more working class migrants, uh, I think are pretty clear. Um, yeah. You know, of course, always having having money is always uh, beneficial. So there are yeah. there are private schools that one can go to, um, you know, uh, the, one of the ways that I think about um, these restrictions in cities like Beijing is that weirdly, it creates a subsidy for universities in the United States, Britain, Canada, because you have these children that are going uh, of, of relatively well-off people. If they're going to high school in Beijing, they might be able to do that. But the university entrance exam is a hard cutoff. You can't take the university entrance exam 
if you don't have local HUCO. Mm -hmm. And so a decision that a lot of parents have made in these large cities is that they put their children on an international track very early on, right? Learning English, going to international school with the expectation that they're not even going to take the university entrance exam in China, that they'll just try to test into, you know, to a British or American school or, or what have mm. you. Mm. That's a fascinating account of, of uh, uh, international education mobility that's driven by this sort of local policy ex exclusions, you know, uh, That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so, something I think totally invisible to, to most people in, in these Western countries. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and it's fascinating to me that, that uh, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about this later, but the, the rationale behind, because my impression of China is that uh, the country is extremely good at, you know, establishing all these hierarchies, like categorizing people into, you know, into rural and urban and then into all these different categories so that you know you, you kind of know your place and yes. then if you sort of try to get out of place then you are you're punished in many many different ways or you have to uh, yeah work a lot harder <laughs> right very that, that's very much the case and that is something that I saw pretty clearly in my research um, where people would talk about you know who they are as a person and they're like am I the kind of person who can make it in Beijing and you know, I also did interviews in smaller cities in, in Guiyang uh, and in mm. Chengdu, which are in Western China. And, mm. you know, um, we talked to some migrants who were in Guiyang, who were not from Guiyang, from rural parts of, uh, of the province. And mm. they would sort of say, um, we would ask questions like, did you ever consider going to a large Eastern city, you know, like Beijing? And they would say, no, 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 you know, I'm, I'm barely literate. I haven't even finished primary school. Like, a person like me can only go as far as Guiyang, right? So this, yeah. this yeah. real sense that like who I am limits the kinds of cities I'm allowed to live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating. Right. So in chapter four of your book, which is called uh, titled A Rendered Surplus, you depicted in vivid but heartbreaking manners, in my view, how the rural to urban migrants are rendered surplus, uh, in inverted commas, and uh, unwanted by the local state governments of Beijing and other mega cities, like you mentioned. Uh, in one example, you cited this family with a child whose hukou was registered in the parents' friend's hometown, which was different from the parents' hometown, and thus was caught in a limbo as this child could not get admission by schools in Beijing nor in their own hometown. So, from the perspective of education mobilities, this is a salient example of education immobility caused by a suite of oppressive government instituted policies, including the birth control policy, well, because this child was like the extra child, in a sense, and rigid and exclusionary public school admission systems, both in rural and urban areas. So my question is, now that the country encourages its people to have more children, for instance, three children per family, do you think such education immobility limbos would decrease? I do think they'll decrease. Um, there's a question about how much, but I, I so the first thing to say is that the increasing the limit is uh, is a positive development. Um, it may be too little, too late uh, to to actually increase China's birth rate, but you know I'm not a demographer, so that's that's a question for someone else. Uh, and I, I do think it would be better to to eliminate um, birth control policies altogether. Um, but in any event, what that means, and with respect uh, to the example. Uh, that you just mentioned, if uh, you have three children, 
um, it, it, it will be easier to register them if they're born um, sort of in violation of the birth control policy. The way it's worked for a long time is that if you have children in violation of the policy, even under the sort of the strict one-child policy, um, you had to pay a hefty fine, right? And so for people who were not able to pay that fine, that meant that their children uh, don't have huko at all. Uh, in Chinese, they're called chaoshengzi, uh, right? The like surplus children. Um, and so if you don't have a huko at all, you can't register in your hometown or in the city. Um, so, so, so the government also announced a plan um, maybe two or three years ago, I can't remember exactly, to that they were going to essentially grant amnesty. They were going to grant huko to all of these children who had been born in violation of the plan. Um, and so I see that also as a really um, positive development. Again, there's always questions about implementation. How will they reach migrant children who are living outside of their place of, of registration? Um, but I, but I do think, um, but I do think it's it's moving things in the right direction for sure. Uh, given that having um, huko is is necessary to get into school anywhere. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Changing the birth control policy in and of itself will not be uh, enough to 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 sort of overcome all of the the, the problems related to immobility, um, because you have all of these other obstacles. Uh, that that will still be in place if you have a non-local huko. So you know, looking at the at the migrant workers, um, those kinds of obstacles uh, still remain, and in, in some cases are even being um, sort of intensified, at, at least in the largest cities. Mm, yeah, yeah. So a, a lot more has to be done in order to yeah. And I think we'll discuss this a bit later. Yeah, right. So in educational mobilities research, we often discuss the benefits. Well, in addition to the myriad inequalities that education mobilities bring to individual students and their families, in your research, we read about the dire conditions in migrant schools in Beijing, uh, the city with arguably the most and best educational resources in China. Can you observe any benefits or gains that these migrant children accrue in their schooling experience in Beijing? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that Beijing is a very important city, but it's also pretty exceptional in all sorts of ways. Um, as I mentioned, I also did research in Guangzhou uh, as well as in Guiyang and Chengdu. So I, I do have some sense about what's happening in other places. Um, and, and the kind of the short way to summarize how Beijing is different is that somewhat more students, uh, somewhat more migrant children, I should say, are getting will get into public schools in Beijing than is the case in other cities than in even say Shanghai or Guangzhou. But those who are left out of the public system are treated much more harshly, that the migrant schools receive no, no, no support uh, from the government. They are sometimes subjected to, to pretty violent demolitions and, and things like that. So, so Beijing is, is a weird city um, in, in a number of respects. Uh, on this question of the, the benefits that migrant children might um, accrue uh, if, they're, if they're going to schools in Beijing, there, there is research that shows that on average, if you compare educational outcomes for children of migrant workers that go to the city versus those that stay behind in the countryside to go to public school, um, that it is that you are better off staying behind and going to public schools in rural areas. This is on average, there's important regional differences. So that's the kind of, that's the, the headline. Um, there's of course, you know, social considerations, emotional considerations of, of co-locating with parents that are really important. Mm -hmm. But there are when we're when we're 
kind of drilling down on the on the specificity of Beijing, which again is you know the second largest city in China, very very important for understanding these dynamics. Um, I do think that there are some benefits. So the first is that a lot of them actually can can get into public schools, at least for primary and secondary school. Um, and probably an increasing number of migrants over the last 15 or 20 years uh, have gotten into to public schools. And, and Beijing has you know, probably the best public education system uh, in the country and, and frankly, uh, globally uh, compared to other large cities, you know, Beijing uh, does quite well. Um, so, um, so, so for those that get in, uh, it's positive. We still have many tens of thousands of people who are left outside of the public system and they have to go to these informal migrant schools. There are fewer and fewer of those. As I mentioned, people who are left out of the public system um, are, are treated pretty harshly. There's been a lot of efforts uh, to remove uh, those populations from the cities altogether, targeting both schools as well as um, informal housing communities where lots of migrants are. Beijing's population has been falling in absolute terms uh, since 2017. So, so there are fewer of those, and there are, uh, you know, the, the the number of migrant schools, uh, schools specifically for migrant children, has fallen. It peaked at more than 300 in 2006, and now there's, um, you know, the last number I saw was just over 100. It may be below that um, now. For those children that are in that are in migrant schools that cannot get into the the public system, there are some benefits of being in the capital. Uh, and and the first and most important one I think is access to NGOs and foundations. Mm. It's Beijing, right? So a lot of these organizations are there in the capital, mm. and many of the schools for migrant children do receive some kind of um, support or subsidies uh, from these foundations from these NGOs. A lot of the um, NGOs will run various kinds of classes um, for children uh, of migrant workers. So these schools generally are only able to offer the, the core classes, you know, in Chinese language, in math, um, at, at upper levels, you know, the uh, history. But but it's only they, they very rarely can have uh, adequate um, offerings in art or in physical education. So I was as part of my research, um, I uh, participated in some activities from NGOs where they would bring in volunteers, oftentimes from universities, um, and they would they would do art classes, right? Something that the school couldn't do on their own. There's this program called um, Teach Future China, which brings uh, recent college graduates um, into these migrant schools to teach for one or two years. There's a lot of issues with with that program. I think a lot of times students are not well prepared, frankly, um, to teach uh, in, in the, a very difficult environment. Um, but again, you're in Beijing, you have a lot of universities, you have a lot of very smart students, and they participate in some of these, uh, these activities. So, you know, I don't think that this stuff is enough to counterbalance all of the, the difficulties, and I think much more needs to be done. But being in Beijing does offer you access to some of those resources. You know, there's 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 the the museums there's libraries if you're if you're really dedicated to furthering your education and and you know you have a little bit of extra time you can make use of some of those resources as well mm. yeah the question of course is whether they know how to use this or access these resources exactly exactly mm -hmm. That's right. So yeah, you you know, I mean, you have wonderful university campuses, uh, you and you have museums. Many of them are are at least nominally open to the public. 
you know, if you're a 12-year-old a, a a child of, of migrants, let, you know, your parents might be illiterate, right? They might yeah. speak a different uh, dialect altogether. Um, there's, for most of these, these children are not going to be able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, I remember talking to children um, in these schools are, are mostly located in the outer regions, you know, around the fifth, sixth ring road in, in Chaoyang district and Changping district and talking to students who were like really excited because they were planning a field trip to Tiananmen Square. And I was like, you know, they've lived here for years and they've never, they've, <laughs> they don't go to Tiananmen, which, um, so, so their world oftentimes is, is quite small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, their geographical exposure is limited by their socioeconomic background. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So ultimately, is there a way out of this inverse welfare state, especially in terms of its stringent and exclusionary educational practices for the migrant children in big cities? Um, in, in one of our recent uh, podcasts, uh, we, we, we interviewed this author, Jia Xingchen, who has a book published in 2022 called uh, Class Consciousness Construction of Rural Migrant Children in China uh, by Taylor and Francis. And she notes the following, and this is the quote, rural migrant children's interpretations of perceived class-based inequalities and their intended actions to achieve future improvements showed a state of false consciousness overshadowed by individualism, meritocracy, and the duality of images. More importantly, such dominant ideologies of individualism and meritocracy and the depreciation of migrant workers were strongly embraced by migrant families and school environments, the two most significant institutions shaping migrant children's class consciousness uh, construction. So while I understand that in your study, you did not interview the migrant children to avoid causing emotional harm in them, uh, do you have any response to Chen's findings? More specifically, is there any hope that these rural migrant children can transcend these difficulties and even challenge uh, the oppressive status quo. Yeah, um, you know, that it is not an optimistic uh, reading of the situation. Um, it is one that I mostly share, um, but but with some caveats. So that kind of individualized consciousness absolutely is a feature uh, for, um, you know, for children of migrant workers. I should say that I didn't do formal interviews with children because I couldn't quite figure out how to do it in an ethical way. Um, but I, I spoke to a lot of children. I spent a lot of time in schools um, and I did formal interviews with a lot of teachers and parents. And I think if we're considering, you know, what kind of collectivity might have an interest in pushing for a just, uh, a more just system, yes, it's the children, but also of course, parents, uh, teachers and, and the, the broader communities would need to be involved uh, as well. So, so I do have some insight into this. And it is, it is certainly the case that this, this kind of individualized approach to overcoming uh, the, their, their conditions is, is dominant, right? People sort of say, well, you just have to do, you know, you have to, you have to work hard, you have to study hard. If you get good enough grades, you know, then maybe you'll be able to get into a public school. Um, and then uh, the, the, the kind of the upper end of aspiration for most migrant children within Beijing is that uh, if they can if they can test into um, academic high school right after they take the uh, the the high school entrance exam that they'll go, actually go back to their hometown and and do high school or at least the last year or two of high school in their hometown 
because that's the place where they can take the university entrance exam. So the, the sort of the aspiration for the, the really good students do go back so that they can try to get into university um, uh, back home. But so that that this very kind of individualized path absolutely is um, is true. I I. I um, I'm a little reluctant to call it false consciousness. Um, you know, there, there is, this is in some ways an accurate reflection, I think, of how the market uh, treats people and, and of how the whole citizenship regime treats people, right? You get access to this nominally public good of education dependent on your individual qualities and the individual qualities uh, of your parents. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a misreading of the real um, situation. At the same time, I agree very much with the sentiment uh, that all of these people pursuing their own individual interest is bad for them at sort of at the level of, of class or of the collectivity. So there's there's a question of how to overcome this. I talk a little bit in the end of the book about some forms of collective resistance that have emerged um, that I that are still in very embryonic form, but we can see that there is uh, a common understanding that that the system, is unfair for migrants, that you see people sometimes in, in very uh, kind of nationalistic terms, even critiquing the system and saying, you know, we are all Chinese people. Um, I, I have one quote uh, there in the book where someone says, you know, we are all descendants of the dragon, right? Uh, sort of referencing this idea of a common uh, blood lineage. Um, and and therefore, you know, how can you treat my children as different from the children of someone who's from Beijing when we do share this this common blood lineage? So there's there's that kind of you know somewhat nationalist uh, invocation that's happening. Um, and in some cases, you do see you do see parents uh, along with children and along with teachers taking collective action. So there's been resistance to migrant schools being demolished. Um, when I was doing field work in 2014, the city of Beijing dramatically increased the requirements to get for children to get into public school. And so you had some families who were operating under the assumption that their children would be able to get into a public school. And then all of a sudden they were finding that was not going to be a possibility and they might have to send them back to the village. Uh, it created all kinds of, uh, of difficulties in people's lives. And so there were some collective protests that happened, including groups of parents going down to the um, to the the uh, education department uh, and protesting, and you know, in some cases they can win or they can get some sort some sort of compromise. So, even these collective actions are still at at pretty small scale. We don't see like a a regional or or certainly a national level movement around demanding um, equal access to education. Um, but I, I think that these these kind of incipient collective actions, as well as what is what is absolutely, I think, a, a widespread sense um, that this is that this is unfair, that suggests that there's the possibility for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the question of what concretely would they propose? Uh, I, I kind of make the argument that if you abolish HUCO tomorrow mm -hmm. and sort of open up the schools, that, that that's good, um, mm -hmm. but actually probably not even sufficient. One piece of the uh, the inverted welfare state that I didn't get into before um, is that uh, China has this whole kind of spatial hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the redistribution of fiscal resources, it, it redistributes things upwards. Mm -hmm. So the higher up the hierarchy you go, the more resources they have. Mm -hmm. To put this very simply, 
education in Beijing, in Shanghai and Guangzhou is very, very good. And they spend a lot of money on their students. And the smaller the city, the less money they have to provide education, right? And so, and so what that means is that, um, you know, people who are living in different regions of the country are still going to have, you know, access to suboptimal uh, education. There's another thing that has been growing just over the last, you know, decade or so, um, which is that real estate is actually coming to play a bigger and bigger role. So I mentioned how this operates in the United States. In China, it's still, it's still not there. But what you've seen is this movement um, towards catchment-based enrollments, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the city of Beijing, um, for um, not quite 10 years, uh, they've, they've been required to do catchment-based enrollment. And this is part of the long transition out of, uh, you know, the, the planning era in, in state socialism, where uh, they would have they would have certain lists, right? And they could take people from, you know, certain work units or, you know, if certain government official wanted to get their child into a very good school, you know, they, they could do that. And they're trying to establish this kind of more straightforward and transparent way, which is to say, if you live within this catchment area, you will enroll in this, you can enroll in this school and it's a public school. One of the maybe unintended consequences of this is that the real estate around in the catchment areas of very good public schools has become prohibitively expensive. And so we can see this going back to, uh, to 2017, where you had people who were buying apartments, in some cases, for hundreds of thousands of dollars U.S., um, and uh, without the intention of even living there because they still wanted to live in some big apartment out in the suburbs just so they could get access to, to public schools. So, so I, I do see this kind of the emergence of this more real estate mediated form of inequality. And again, if you get rid of HUCO, it doesn't, that, that doesn't matter anymore, right? So, so, um, so I do think that you should get rid of those HUCO restrictions. But if we're concerned with educational inequality in general, there are still other problems that will need to be tackled. Mm, yeah, yeah. Pretty bleak. <laughs> Pretty bleak. Yeah. yeah. So I, I realized that we've been talking uh, a, a lot about the, the, the children and sometimes parents, but we haven't really talked about teachers, which was actually one of the beginning points of the project. We, right. we actually wanted to study the living conditions or working conditions of the teachers in, in the first place. So, uh, and I know, know that in your book, you, you did write about many of the issues that the teachers encounter. And one of them is like the very low, um, low salary and also the excessive amount of work compared with public schools. And this has caused quite a lot of teacher mobility in a sense, right? Some teachers leave the profession. Some teachers uh, are sort of poached by the public schools if they are good enough. Um, so yeah, so I just I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So again, that's me as as a labor scholar. You know, I was in these schools, and um, I see them, of course, as first and foremost a place of education uh, from the children's perspective and from the family's perspective. Um, but it's also it's also a workplace, right? And you know, there are more people uh, in China who are employed as teachers than than probably any other profession. Um, so, so it is it is important, and it's something that my my labor scholar colleagues uh, have really overlooked. Um, so, I did want to draw some attention to that. Um, there is variation; different cities do it differently. For teachers who work in migrant schools in Beijing, the conditions are particularly bad, um, and that's because these schools are fully informal. Again, they receive no public support, 
and they're serving this entirely working class communities. So, you know, the wages were just, they were well below minimum wage um, and, uh, and working hours were insanely long. It was very normal to encounter people who are working 60, even 70 hours a week um, with course, with um, course loads that were more than twice as much uh, as, as public school teachers. And the other thing that, that, really struck me. And I did some comparative research in public schools in Beijing as well, just as, you know, for reference points. The, the teachers in migrant schools have to take on all of these other duties responding to the sort of the social difficulty that the children face, right? They're in these communities that are very transient, right? Parents moving around frequently, the children are moving around frequently. There's very, very high turnover among the children so the teachers, one of their biggest um, gripes about the workplace was that was the uneven abilities among their children, among, oh, sorry, among the among the students. Um, the students were constantly coming in and out. They, you know, for children, it's uh, particularly young children, right? It can be a, a big adjustment, making new friends, feeling comfortable speaking in the classroom. Uh, some of them were just coming from the village. Maybe their Mandarin wasn't all that good yet. Um, so... <laughs> And these are things that that teachers in public schools are not dealing with, right? It's a much more settled environment of, you know, relatively, you know, middle class. I mean, not everyone is rich in Beijing, of course, but at least people live there, their parents live there, they have a, a kind of a fixed accommodation. So a lot of those problems come into the classroom. And because there are not other services there, they they take on they take on all kinds of responsibilities looking after the children. And a lot of the teachers referred to themselves as a mother, right? They would say, I'm both a teacher and a mother uh, to these uh, to these children. That was a very common sentiment that I um, that I encountered. And so one consequence of that um, is also, as you just said, very high a turnover among the teachers as well. Now, a lot of them are, are very, very dedicated. Um, they care a lot about the work. Um, it is not viable, you know, as, as a profession. Uh, the only people that I spoke to who had been in the profession for a long time were, were women. And I think the gendered component of this is really important. And their husbands had jobs that paid them more. And so they could, they, the way a lot of people described it was, you know, I'm doing this basically as like more or less as volunteer work. Like I want to give back to society and we don't need the wages for, for sustenance. Um, but you would not be able to live uh, in, in the city of Beijing uh, on those wages. So if other opportunities came up, people would take them. And particularly if they demonstrated, you know, real capabilities as a teacher, um, they could get poached by public schools. And you cannot blame these teachers for wanting to go to public schools where they would get paid more, they would have better job security, they would have a, a lighter workload um, and just better working environment in general. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I mean, I understand that you're a labor scholar. Uh, so uh, in terms of, do you want to comment on, on anything on the exploitation or, you know, the operation of these uh, migrant schools? Because I know that they are all, I think mostly all, all, all self-funded um, sort of, uh, run by private sort of uh, owners, right? Yeah, that's right. There, there's important variation between different um, cities. So uh, in Shanghai, actually, the government does provide some direct subsidies to these privately run schools. Uh, in Guangzhou, they provide less, but they at least license them and do some regulation and oversight. In Beijing, they are the, the large majority of these migrant schools are completely unlicensed. So the government knows they're there. 
um, but they're unlicensed. There's no oversight. There's no support um, uh, whatsoever. Uh, and so, you know, so, so things are different in different places. Some of them are pretty exploitative. Um, they are run as, as pretty kind of cutthroat businesses. Um, and I've been, I've been to some schools that are, you know, part of big companies and they'll have multiple locations. I have a very distinct memory of being in a, a pretty rundown migrant school in Guangzhou and the boss, they called him the boss, not the principal, um, uh, drove in in his, in his BMW, which was, which was pretty notable in that context. Um, and teachers oftentimes really complain about these exploitative um, conditions that the bosses just kind of see it as one way to make money. And so they're really trying to, sque to squeeze the workers, which, which, which in this case are teachers. Um, not all schools are like that, right? And there are, there are a lot of schools that were started by, by migrant workers themselves um, as these kind of like mutual aid outfits. The, the, the origins of the migrant schools are really just, you know, someone in, in an apartment building just taking the kids of their friends or, you know, people from their hometown um, and, and, and taking care of them. And they kind of grew out from there. So, you know, a lot of them really are, they're really trying to provide a decent service to the community that doesn't have access uh, to the public system. Um, it's hard to scale that up, right? So when you have a school, some of these schools have more than a thousand students, um, you know, it, it requires, it requires other kinds of bureaucratic organization and whatnot. Um, you also have schools, and this is particularly true in Beijing, that as I mentioned, receive significant support from foundations. Um, and so that allows them to have somewhat better facilities, um, uh, you know, maybe a computer lab and things like that. It allows them to pay their teachers a little bit more. I, I never encountered teachers in migrant schools that were well paid, um, but, you know, some of them were, were a little bit better. Um, it might allow them to reduce tuition a little bit. Um, so, you know, some of them are, are a little bit better off. Mm, right, right, right. So fascinating. Many of our members uh, are interested in the publication process. So can you share how you went about proposing this book to Columbia University Press? What were the highlights or challenges of getting this book published? Yeah, so one of the challenges I faced, at least one of the challenges that I that I felt um, was thinking about the audience. Um, so as I've already mentioned, I'm trained as a labor scholar. I feel like I know that audience really well, having published a book and lots of articles in that in that area. Um, but now that I was doing this project that was kind of in urban studies, kind of about studying education, um, I was a little bit unsure if it would just kind of fall through the cracks and and nobody would be interested in it. So, um, you know, finding a way in the proposal to, to craft it such that it appeared um, of interest, you know, to education scholars, even though I'm not, it, it's not a traditional sort of study of education. I can't tell, I, I don't have anything novel to say about, you know, test outcomes or pedagogy or anything like that. Um, how to convince labor scholars that there was still something interesting. I'm studying workers, but the workplace, you know, really doesn't appear uh, much uh, in the book. Um, I, I think that that was something of a challenge. Um, finding the right publisher is, uh, it, it, um, it can be challenging, right? And, and I think uh, the, the, you just need to reach out to different editors. Um, I did not have a pre-existing relationship with Columbia. I've never published anything with them. 
It's not like I had colleagues who kind of brought me in the back door or anything like that. Um, but I think that it was a really good fit. Um, I, I decided to send something to them. I heard the, the director of the press and he was, he was talking about their interests. And he said that they've established these key uh, themes, which were, I think that this, I'm remembering this right, which is that Columbia wants to publish things related to um, urban, contemporary, and global. Uh, and I kind of felt like my book, you know, ticked all three of those boxes uh, to some extent, um, and it seemed like a good fit. So, um, you know, I sent the proposal in. I, I had some conversations um, with uh, with the acquisitions editor, and just seemed like a really great fit. And 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 frankly, it's it's been a totally wonderful experience um, publishing with them. Yeah, that's really good, good to hear. And uh, the well, the difficulties of interdisciplinary work was also quite quite uh, rightly emphasized. It, it's quite challenging, but but you but you did it. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So I understand that you you had to make a decision about focusing this book entirely on Beijing and not on the other cities that you did your field work. Uh, so I think this is related to my final question, which which is what are your what are your plans or next steps for this research project? Yeah. I've had a lot of different ideas about what what my next plans are going to be, um, and unfortunately, uh, I have come to the conclusion that I probably will not be able to do field work in China um, anytime soon. There's the uh, you know the COVID situation, which makes it very very difficult uh, to travel. I'm a little bit nervous, frankly, about the uh, the political situation. Um, you know, having written things in the past that are uh, that are critical of the government, and you know, finding local partners. Um, I think would be would be challenging. So I've I've decided to kind of put the the field work based stuff uh, uh, on the back burner and to to pause it for a little bit. I'm I there's a couple of follow up things that I would like to look into. I'm interested in 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 a more comprehensive understanding of uh, government policies for accessing education and how they've changed. So I had a pretty good look at the the, the mega cities and the and the developed cities. Um, but I do want to know a lot more about small and medium-sized cities since the government's uh, intuition or, or the government's uh, policy, the, the central government's policy has been to try to encourage more migration to these small and medium-sized cities. So I want to know as people are increasingly, you know, moving from rural areas rather than going to, you know, Beijing or Guangzhou, they'll be going to the local county city or or maybe a provincial capital. Um, you know, I want to know what what the process is like there. So I may be able to gather some of that uh, based on um, just on reading policy. I I really like field work and I really miss it. Um, so uh, so so you know, it, it, it's tough to 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 maybe uh, to, to pause that at least for the time being. Um, those are some things that I'm thinking about. I've also started a new project, which is in some ways going back to, to my, my labor uh, roots um, and looking at the impact of China's rise somewhat historically or going back 30 years on, um, on some of the neighboring societies in, in East Asia. Um, and so that would have, you know, less of an education uh, component to it. But um, yeah, all of the, you know, the, the big, big changes in the world, uh, both geopolitical and, and with the pandemic have... I think I've pushed a lot of people to have to reconsider how they do how they do the research, uh, and I'm I'm certainly among them. Yeah, yeah, that that, that sounds uh, very reasonable, and I, I mean probably not 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 just labor scholars like yourself, uh, even even for for uh, researchers like myself, uh, we are like the pandemic has posed so many challenges uh, for people who have to do field work in China, given the 
still very strict uh, sort of control policies. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 So thank you so much, Eli. It's it's been a wonderful conversation, and I'm I have personally enjoyed reading your book, and I hope that your book will reach an a, a even broader uh, audience. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We are delighted to have this opportunity. To listen to Eli about his intriguing research journey and key findings about migrant schools in Beijing, we thank him for sharing invaluable insights into his interdisciplinary research experience and book publishing process. We wish Eli all the best with his next step of research. Thank you all.